Um, I want you to look at your sermon notes for a moment. I want you to look at the front of your bulletin, uh, and then I want you to look at your sermon notes. First of all, the front of your bulletin. I realize that a title like this for a sermon on any given Sunday can, uh, can tend to alienate the very friends that I'm trying to win over and want to talk to about. Um, and yet this, uh, you know, Four Dummies series is wildly popular. Uh, think for a moment of who the target audience of this series is for. Dummies, right? So this is a wildly popular series, either because there's a lot of dummies out there, or here's what I really suspect. I suspect that we need help, and I suspect that we need, uh, you know, we, we need the information and the tools about a topic, but here's what we're saying with this series selling so popular on any range of topics. Don't overwhelm me. Give me something I can use. I need to know something that I can grab onto and actually use. And some of you feel like that with the Bible. I know I do sometimes. I come to the Bible and I go, this just seems complex. Give me something I can use. Take your sermon notes this morning. I want you to flip over to the back side. On the back side, every single week are community group questions. Have you ever seen so many community group questions in your life? Not for me, you haven't. Um, There's an entire page. Community group leaders, just take note. You're going to need to pick and choose a little bit. Unless you expand your group to a three-hour session, you're going to need to kind of scope these out and say, which ones should I really focus on? And here's the reason they're so long. There is so much good stuff in our passage today, I couldn't leave stuff out. So what I would do is I'd go, I I can't leave this out, so I'm going to move this to the community group questions. There is so much gold to mine in this passage today, we don't have time to get to it all. Instead, here's what I want to do. I want to give you two handles. I want to help you grab on to two things from this passage today. I hope you walk away with those. And then some of the rest of this you can save for community group time. All right? I want you to think of this morning as kind of a do-it-yourself. Do-it-yourself is huge right now, right? This is a do-it-yourself on how to discern heresy and how to use good judgment. Rather than saying this is left to some elite class that is highly educated, highly trained, and very specific, and you should just listen to them on these matters, God has done this. God has always taken truth and kind of put it on the low shelf for people. Part of why I feel confident in using a uh, you know, good judgment for dummies title in Second Peter is I think the author of Second Peter would have, would have cheered this on. He was a guy from the docks. Peter was a fisherman. And frankly, he was a guy who understood that God uses regular Joes to take truth and just put it on the low shelf for people to to grab hold of. And this morning's passage really is kind of a do-it-yourself of saying, wow, God's equipped me, God's given me some tools to kind of make my own judgment and not feel ill-equipped to to leave it to, to someone else. If you're new with us, this is part six in a series walking through a letter called 2 Peter. So if you ever need to, if you ever miss one, if you want to get caught up, here's what I'd recommend. You could go to our our sermon page on our website, and you could catch up on the podcast. We podcast every single message that we do. Better yet is to go read 2 Peter. That would actually help catch you up. And maybe doing those in tandem would be really helpful. So last week, uh, Gria handled the first few verses, and it basically is this. False teachers are here. Watch out. That was one of the big messages from last week. Now in this passage, Peter's going to challenge us. He's going to call us to use good judgment, to develop our good judgment, and he's going to do it through reminding. Remember this whole theme of reminding through this whole letter? Uh, He's going to remind us by using history, and he's also going to kind of point out a few things of what to look for in false people. Let me pray, and then we'll uh, dive into some scripture. God, thank you so much for music, and I thank you for good music, God, and good lyrics that lift our eyes to you and remind us where our help comes from, remind us of some of the attributes of who you are, God. Even in the song we just sang, we heard of some history, some Bible stories, God, historical accounts of how you came through, and uh, Lord, that gives us confidence in moving forward. Right now, as we open your word, I pray, God, that you would really speak through the word. The word is the highlight of this morning. It's what we have come to hear, is to hear from you. And I pray that as I speak, you would help me, God, to uh, be clear and be concise. I pray, Lord, that you would stir up in our hearts and minds what we need from this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 
Uh, so we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 10 this morning and, uh, and then move over into our passage in just a bit. While you're turning there, have you ever been duped? You ever been duped in life? Here's a second question. Have you ever been the one duping? Right? I am number three in four boys. Can I just tell you? I have been duped a lot in my life, and I have done the duping a lot in my life. That's part of growing up in a household of four boys. I have a long list of those, in fact. Um, maybe as you think about being duped, it was kind of all fun and games, and you thought, yeah, that was kind of one of those ah, gotcha moments. But maybe what jumped into your mind is something a lot more serious. Life is actually filled with us being, take your pick, swindled, ripped off, deceived, double-crossed, hoodwinked. How's that word? And sometimes it's kind of carefree and fun, and you don't think about it more than 24 hours. Sometimes it actually alters the course of your life. And you go, man, if I could have only seen through that. I got ripped off. I was flat out deceived on that one. And there are really giant moments that tend to shape us. I want to start this morning by just saying this. It really matters what you believe. It matters what you believe because your life springs from those beliefs. We're not talking Christianity. I'm not talking about religion. I'm just saying whatever you believe is huge about you. It's massive because your life springs from those beliefs. Furthermore, it matters who you trust because catch this. Your beliefs will come from the voices you listen to. Your beliefs will form out of those who are teaching you. Even if you've been led to a place that says, I'm not going to trust anyone again. I'm not going to listen to anyone else except myself. Who's your teacher? Yourself. Your life will be shaped by, by that decision. Will it not? Of course it will. So it matters what you believe, and it really matters who you trust because of the fact that your life springs from these things. Last week, Gria, in three verses, laid out the fact that truth will have opposing voices. That's 2 Peter 1-3. to Teachers who pose as prophets. They're dressed up with the truth, but they peddle lies. It has been the case it is the case, and it will be the case. Remember from a few weeks ago that much of parenting is simply about reminding? We're going to get some more reminders today. We're in chapter 2 of Second Peter. Don't turn there. I'm still in 1 Corinthians 10. But Peter's letting us know in chapter 2 that we're going to have a fight on our hands. If you want to get at what's true, there's opposition to it all. And unsheathing the sword of the Spirit, opening the books of the Scripture is our defense. That's what we're to do. In fact, keep your finger in 1 Corinthians 10 and just hold, hold a Bible for a moment. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. I'd love that to be your gift this morning if you don't own a Bible. But about, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible is the division. You don't need to find it, but just, just, kind, of, just kind of put your, your finger about two-thirds of the way through the Scriptures. About two-thirds of the way through the Scriptures is the division between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I'm having you kind of draw up this, this little distinction between the Old and the New Testament for one simple reason. We were told earlier in Second Peter here that you will do well to pay careful attention to the things written down in this first part of the Bible. You know what I think tends to not be as dog-eared and yellowed in people's Bibles? The Old Testament. You know why? Because we're used to books for dummies. I mean, frankly, we want it boiled down. It's a little harder to get, get at some of the truth that's there. There's a little more digging sometimes that, that, that goes on with that. But here's a part of why we should give careful attention to it. The things that happened to the people that have lived before us happened for our example. And they were written down for our instruction. Now, don't you see that it's not just enough that there are examples before us. That's never enough to grow us up, is it? It's actually never enough to have examples and have it written down if we don't ever open it up, right? 
They're written down for our instruction. They only benefit us, though, if we open up the book and look at it. We learn, we grow by remembering, by observing, by reviewing, by thinking, and then, catch this, by acting on that knowledge. If we don't ever act on the knowledge, it really does us no good. All right, 1 Corinthians 10. Gosh, I told you guys to get there, and I'm not there. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, starting in verse 6. Verses 1 to 5, catch this, is a history lesson. Paul now is writing this. Paul is going and sharing some history. That's 1 to 5. Now, pick up in verse 6. What he's saying is this. Pay attention. Now, these things took place as examples for us. Pay attention. That's what he's saying. That we might not desire the evil that they did. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. I wanted to show it to you in 1 Corinthians because we're going to look at that principle lived out in 2 Peter's teaching. Flip over now to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter's about to give us his own little history lesson, not because he likes to hear himself talk. He's giving us a history lesson to drive home a single point. Okay, Here's one of the handles I want you to grab onto with this passage today. And by the way, what I didn't get into, because all of your Bibles have this, are little cross-references that when it brings up a historical event, there is going to be some notation in your Bible or a link on your online Bible that you can simply click on these days. You don't even need to go find the passage. It'll jump you right to that story. It'll take you right where it's recorded in Scripture. God wrote it down, right? He ordained that he would put it in writing. So I would, I would challenge you this week. Maybe you even deviate for a week from your, from your normal reading, from what you kind of find devotionally uh, powerful, to say, I want to read the historical contents just of some of these events of of what this passage is talking about. So here's the single point. Here's why the history lesson. It's easier to sit through history class if you know uh, what it's all for, right? Here's his point. God is judge and court is in session. God is judge. That's his whole point of of bringing these things up. So uh, the the judgment of God, by the way, um, and whether God is a judge, and how he judges is a hotly debated topic, right? People always want to talk about that. Well, you shouldn't be judgmental. Uh, God's not going to judge. God is going to judge. God's loving. He's not wrathful. I mean, these are all the arguments and things that kind of, you know, fall into, into place with that. I think that we're so entitled right now, and I think the word judge and judgmental and judging is almost such a swear word in our culture that any form of it feels like we'd have to defend God. No, he's not judging. No, he's not a judge. He's not judgmental. Uh, There was a a contestant on American Idol a few years ago, and um, she was a terrible singer. And this was back when a British guy named Simon Cowell used to be there. Simon is not one that you would call merciful. He's a truth teller without mercy. Okay, And this person started to sing, and I use that term very loosely, and, uh, and this person stopped and, you know, and Simon just said, you know, you're terrible. You're one of the worst people I've ever heard. He says that every fifth person, so it doesn't really mean much. But uh, this person, this young person said, um, well, I know I can sing. And, and he said, well, what makes you say that? He said, well, I've got tons of friends and family that can tell me I can sing. And he said, well, they're all wrong. <laughs> now, catch this. Catch this. Hear the entitlement. Hear every Disney film kind of built into this statement. Well, who are you to judge me? You know what Simon said? The judge! <laughs> You're in an audition! We're the judges! That's, that's who I am. 
And she asked that question with such arrogance, such confidence, that there is no answer. Everyone's opinion is the same. Wrong. You're in an audition, and there are judges. You know where that else doesn't work? A court of of law, right? Every day. That happens all the time. Well, who are you to judge me? A lot of us feel like, oh, you got me. There's no good answer. Who can judge? God judges. So let me kill the end of the story for you. God God is judgmental. It's his job. He's a judge. And the whole point of this history lesson we're about to get in a few short verses here, it can seem kind of convoluted and all over the place, but here it is. God is judge. That's what he's talking about. All right? So um, here's the kind of logic. Here's the, 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 the way he's using this. He's saying, if blank, then blank. That's the line of reasoning he's giving us. Um, if you're there in second. Uh, Peter, we'll walk through these slower, but verse 4, if God did not spare angels, verse 5, if God did not spare the ancient world, verse 6, if he turned Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, verse 7, if he rescued Lot, wait for it, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue and to keep the righteous, the, the unrighteous under punishment. Did you catch it? If, then. So several verses of if, run on if, if this, if this, if this, then God knows how to judge. He'll rescue the righteous. He'll condemn the wicked. That's the point on display. So as we start to march through this first part, I don't want you to lose sight of that. All right? Here we go. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Pause. That's number one. Angels. He's saying if angels aren't spared, angels in most and many ways we would agree are more powerful beings than humans. Here's the way you can tell that. Go look at your Bible and see every time an angel shows up, what happens to human beings? They tend to fall down on their face as if they're dead. Because they're angelic beings. They're of a different world. So, if God didn't spare angels is a powerful example of this. He's talking about the spirit realm. Just write down Jude 6. Don't say Jude 6 what, because there's only one chapter. It's Jude verse 6. Here it is. Ready? And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. These are rebellious angels, also called demons. But left their proper dwelling, he, God the judge, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's angels. Moving on, verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Pause. Now what's in view is the ancient world and Noah. Now, Noah was righteous because of his faith. He was righteous because he trusted God in word and in deed. When it says a herald of righteousness, you know what Noah's life is an example to me of? It's, an, it's a long obedience in the same direction. That's a, that's a book title by a guy named Eugene Peterson. A long obedience in the same direction. What a great picture of the Christian life, right? How long did it take Noah to build the ark? Like a hundred plus years, depending exactly on how you do the math. It's not laid out specifically, but he was a certain age when he was told to do it, and the flood came at a certain age. That's a long obedience in the same direction in the face of incredible persecution. He was a herald of righteousness. He said the right things. Why are you building the ark, Noah? God told me to. God warned of pending judgment, so I'm going to live my life as if that's true. And indeed, how do we know that? He built the ark. He did the work. Day after day after day, his actions backed up his tongue. And while it was open for others to be saved, Noah and his family were the ones that were saved. The ungodly of his day did not turn. They did not 
repent. How do we know this? We don't know what they have said, because that wasn't recorded to us, but we know what they did, or rather what they did not do. Their actions showed they didn't trust the word of God. How do we know? They didn't get on the ark. It's really, really simple. Their words and their actions were wicked, and they were judged. If the ungodly of that day weren't spared, why would one think it different today? This is where Peter's going, okay? So, we've got angels, we've got the ancient world, and Noah. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, verse 7, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now we have Sodom and Gomorrah on display. Angelic beings weren't spared. The whole ancient world wasn't spared. Now two specific cities aren't spared. God used water in Noah's day to judge the earth. You know, he's made a promise never to do that again. Now in Sodom and Gomorrah, he used fire to judge the earth. Do you know that he's promised to do that again? This present earth, this present heavens are reserved for fire. The things we care so much about, the things that sometimes rob our attention, are going to burn. Not only can we not take it with us in the little box we're going to end up in or the vase on the hearth or whatever else is going to, or sprinkled over the, whatever, you know, however it's going to happen, we don't bring it with us. Not only that, it's going to burn. How about I'm leaving it for future generations? Yeah, that's true up to a point. It's going to burn. It's been promised to us. We'll get to that in chapter 3. Peter once again affirms both God's ability to deliver, he, he rescued righteous Lot, and to condemn. Why the history lesson? Because God has judged, God judges, and God will judge. There's a future coming great judgment. And these weren't spared, and neither will the wicked today. Look at verse 9. All these ifs, right? Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Question for you. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to call out loud. Just think about it. How many of you had parents that followed through? Did your parents tend to follow through, or did they tend to slack off? My buddies and I, we all knew what groundings meant in each other's homes. You know why? Because we went and played wiffle ball almost every day after school. And in my house, if Dave was grounded for a week, guess who wouldn't be playing wiffle ball for a week? Me. I had other buddies. If they were grounded for a week, I would see them tomorrow. <laughs> it, was just a, it was just a matter of fact. Pretty good chance we'll see him tomorrow. I had parents that followed through. Not always the most pleasant thing when you're growing up. Amen, children? That's right. I actually grew up to thank them for that. But here's why I bring this up. I didn't learn that my parents followed through just from personal experience. God blessed me with two older brothers. And by these two older brothers, I had examples. No one wrote it down, but I was observant. And what happened is I got to watch what was meant by if you break curfew by a minute, you will work for an hour. If you break curfew by five minutes, you will work, do the math, figure it out, for how long? Five hours! I watched my older brother paint our whole back fence one summer. <laughs> And we've never had such a weed-free backyard. <laughs> I learned a ton about what it meant to see judgment go on and me not want to do it. Is that because I'm so much smarter? No, it's because I'm lazy. I don't like to work. I don't want to go paint the back fence. So guess what time I showed up? I showed up a good five minutes. Sometimes I'd push it to three before curfew. 
so they would never have reason to add extra hours of work into my life. We, friends, have older brothers and sisters who've gone before us. It wasn't enough that it just happened to them. This could have happened to them, and then I could have just had to learn the same lesson over and over. I'm sure there were other arenas. My mom's here. She could tell you. I'm sure there were other arenas where she thought, huh, you should have learned from your brother on this one. I didn't. But I remember on that one, I'm going to learn from them. I observed it. I thought about it. I predicted the future with that. How hard was that? Not that hard. I was in high school. I didn't even have a high school education yet. I just saw that and figured that one out. You see how this is, this is for us right here, right here in our hands. You don't need a Bible degree. You don't need any degree. You don't need a ton of life experience. God's given us the ability to make these judgments. God has and will follow through. He's one of those kinds of parents. He will follow through. He knows how to follow through. He will not be mocked. Now, does God like to punish? Romans 6.23, Greer shared with last week. The wages of sin is death. He's laid it out for us. Here's the cost of sin. Sin kills things. We know it. It's in our relationships. It's in our own in, in our life. It's in our business dealings. It's in our neighborhoods. Sin kills things. Does God like to punish? Not any more than a loving parent likes to punish. But will he? You betcha. Look at Ezekiel. You can write this down. It's actually in your community questions this week, too. Ezekiel 18.23. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? It does not excite God to give people the right payment of their wrongdoing. But he will, because he's just. Instead, he would that they turn and live. The rest of Romans 6.23, by the way, is this. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Over and over and over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are the prophets of God projecting this message, being a herald of righteousness. You're living in sin. Judgment is coming. Turn. I want to ask about you this morning. The way of salvation is clear. God has made it crystal clear. As the people of Noah's day spoke and acted their faith by not getting on the ark, the way of salvation that God provided, so people today act and live out their faith by either trusting in God's plan of salvation or rejecting it. Just like Noah had an ark, and that was the way of salvation. And up until the rain started, that seemed like utter foolishness. But to those being saved, man, it was brilliant. So the way of Christ is utter foolishness. Why would I, pl- would I place my trust in someone who died a long time ago? What does that have to do with anything? Until the rains come, Right? until we take God at his word that judgment is coming and the covering, the way of salvation is to be found in Christ. And many, many, many in this room have words that back that up day after day. And more than that, they have actions that back that up. Do you see how simple this is? It's really simple to, to, to look back on history of Noah's day and say, who, who was the ones trusting God? The ones who said it? No. The ones who kind of did some stuff? No, it was those two things together. Their, their, their actions and their words coming together. 1 Thessalonians 5. You don't need to write it down or, or turn there. Just look at it. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. It goes on to say, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. God is judge and court is in session. All right. Let me bring it to the primary focus of the judgment. The primary people in focus with this whole history lesson are these false teachers that have crept up among you. Look at verse 10. 
we'll pick it up there. Quick word about where we're moving into. When, when it talks about teachers, um, we're talking about uh, teachers and leadership. And what's fascinating about this is Peter doesn't really go into great detail about what they were teaching. He actually focuses almost entirely on how they were acting. And as we talk about leadership right now, there has been so much written about, conferenced about, money exchanging hands about, ideas exchanged about leadership, and yet there is a general fog over leadership and what makes good leadership. And part of the dilemma is to say, how can I use good judgment? What things should I test in someone as to whether to let their voice into my life? I hope you guard that. I hope you guard where you let your kids receive information. We don't live in a perfect world. I'm constantly forced to, like I did on voting night, I'm constantly forced to to think about, God, I live in two kingdoms. I'm a part of a spiritual kingdom that's never going to end, and yet I'm a part of a kingdom here on earth, and this forces me to make really hard decisions sometimes. And there's not perfect answers out there for anywhere. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect school for my kids. There's no perfect resource in, in, in these different ways. And so I've got to make judgment calls. And I've got to do that before God. And it's challenging sometimes. I want to just speak to that. Here's a little hint. Because Peter doesn't focus a ton on, on their content here, but rather their lifestyle, maybe we ought to look not just at content or words, but how someone is acting. What is their lifestyle like? What is the fruit of their life? There are some things I've heard that have the right Christian lingo, but there's a spirit to it that is so worldly, so boastful, it's so self-centered. Even though the content is there and is good. I'll tell you popular words, not even just amongst Christian circles, but secular leadership ventures are kind of picking up on this. Servant leadership, relational. I want to add value to your life. Those are easy words to say. Those are easy words to hijack from Christianity. They're super rare to find lived out, aren't they? I mean, you will go to a leadership thing, and you will hear these things, and from the person talking, you're going, I can just sense that that's not true of this guy. He doesn't want to add value to my life. He's saying that because this conference is adding value to his life. One of the challenges we have with big mega anything, with podcast 24-7 anything, I can listen to all kinds of people, not have a clue how they're acting. It's not that hard to put a slick little package together, put it out there, make millions of dollars off it. A little different to be around people and, and figure it out that way. All right, so good judgment... In terms of teachers, what is the lifestyle of those who teach? Um, gosh, why am I in Hebrews? All right, is someone in Second Peter? Get to Second Peter if you're not there. Um, what I want to do is read this passage and then, and then kind of break it down for us, okay? Uh, starting in verse 10 uh, down through the end of our time this morning. Uh, verse 10. He's keeping the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though much greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their, deep, uh, in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was 
rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with him with, with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, do you see even more history in there? Some of you know your Bibles. You're like, I've read that one. I know that one. My kid's Bible had a little picture of that one. More reminding going on. <clears throat> Very quickly, verse 10. Daring in their disobedience, they despise authority. You know what these people are? They don't like to be told what to do. They're kind of a one-man show. They don't really submit to the laws of man in the form of government or other people's opinions, nor do they submit to the laws of God. The written laws of God having an impact on their life, please. That is not how it goes in these people's lives. Verse 12, living like animals. That means out of instinct and base desires. Uh, right now, we have a little cat that... Um, <laughs> one person started laughing because she knows where this is going. Um, caution on next year's camping trip, you may come home with more pets. That's all I'm saying. This is a cat that we picked up at the camping trip, and... Um, She's actually been a great addition to our house, but she is in heat right now. So we have, like, the National Geographic uh, channel happening in our midst and all kinds of birds and bees lessons happening uh, in our midst as well. So if you need any object lessons, come on over. I charge $5, um, <laughs> and you can kind of start talking to your kids about what's happening with this crazy cat that <laughs> all over the place. If you've never been around it, it's very exciting. Um, my cat is shameless, and it's rather embarrassing for me, but she's not embarrassed by it. Why? She's an animal. She's a cute, little, furry animal. And you know what she does? She lives by instinct. She lives by her appetites. That's it. Totally shameless. And to see that, you go, yeah, I get that. She's a cat, right? Um, what Peter's saying is that these false teachers live the same way. You ever hear that men are animals? That's becoming more and more accepted because people's experience are that that's true. You live by your base desires. That's all you think about. That's all you care about. And sadly, that's a view of manhood right now in our culture, increasingly so. <clears throat> rather than reason, rather than anything else, these live by instinct. Verse 13, so despicable and, dis and addicted to pleasure, they indulge in wild parties carousing in broad daylight. They actually entice others to come along with them. Verse 14, they objectify the opposite sex. They think of only what pleasure other people can bring to them. The appetites never wane. Verse 15, forsaking or leaving the truth. Some wander off, some ditch it pretty quickly. But they forsake in their theology, in their teaching, in their thoughts first, but it always manifests elsewhere. Look at their relationships. They're forsaking of commitments. They're pulling away. They are leaving loyalties. They're leaving their purity. And furthermore, they had the wrong heroes these ones, he said, emulated Balaam. You know what Balaam was? He was greedy. He was a prophet because he liked what he got out of it, period. He was greedy. So in summary, defiant, ruled by appetites instead of reason, sexually immoral, loyal only to themselves, unfaithful to the people they teach, and greedy. So why on earth the warning here? I mean, can't you smell these people a mile away? Can't you see it super clear? Those things are really heinous. You would never give yourselves to someone who was like that. Evidently, these played the game well enough that Peter had to come in and point out subtleties and say this, you know what? Here's their lifestyle, but they have just enough of a veneer that you won't pick up on it. Look back at the warning in verse 1, where did these horrible people come from? From our own midst. How did they bring in these destructive heresies? Secretly. As Gria put it last week, undercover. Second Peter 2.1, but false prophets arose from among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in 
destructive heresies. Friends, the wicked and the righteous aren't always readily apparent. Jesus warned about this. There are some wicked who act righteous, and we don't pick up on it. There are some people who are righteous that are going to surprise us of who gets into heaven because we think, no way, that person, why? We had some stereotype about them. We never look beyond kind of the outward of them. Here's the good judgment for dummies principle. Don't just look at their words. What is the motive of this person peddling this idea to you? What do they have to gain from it? That's a fair question. That's a good question. God's given you that. I hope you're using these right now on me. Some of you know me well enough and you think, yeah, I don't need to go through that grid every single week with Dave because we know Dave. Many of you don't know me. You ought to be using these same things with me. This guy stands up here. He's pretending to preach for God. Is he really or not? If he is, I better listen to it. What is the motive of this person? What is their track record? What is the spirit in all of that's going on right now? When you're receiving something, when you're reading something, when someone's telling you something, what's the spirit there? We're told to test them, 1 John says. Whose kingdom is being built up by this person? Who's getting the glory right now in this moment? As I'm receiving from this person and I'm going, yeah, that sounds so good, yes. Sometimes people prey off of me building up my own kingdom by their words. And you know what happens? I tend to speak favorably of them and give them my money to read their book and go to their conference and get more of what they're selling. But at the end of the day, it's my kingdom being built up. It's my ego being stroked. It's my glory being heaped on. The world is so confused about success and leadership. It's, it's, it's the slick and the suave and the giant that get our attention. Let me give you one quick example that kind of shatters this. David. David the shepherd boy. The prophet comes to pick the next king of Israel David doesn't even get consideration. Leave him out in the field. It's clearly not the youngest, the runt. What happens? He gets picked. Why? Because he had a heart after God. Remember that passage that man looks on the outward appearance, but what does God do? He sees the heart. That's his basis for judgment. Do you know why David was a great leader? There's one simple reason. Because God chose him. That's it. That's why he was good. He was anointed. That's why he was a good leader. Now, he was probably anointed, if we want to try and get in God's head, a dangerous thing at times. Probably anointed because he had a heart after God. But it wasn't anything else. It was because God chose him to be the leader. Enough with self-appointed teachers and self-appointed leaders. You may have the degree, you may have the experience, you may have the position in business, the self-confidence, the tailored suit, the straight white teeth, the perfectly manicured hair. That's all wonderful. I'm all for good dental hygiene. Who cares? Are you God's chosen man or woman? That's what matters to me. Do you even know God? That's really, really critical to allow that voice into your life. David knew God, and so he understood how he got to be king. And catch this, he understood why he was king. Listen to 2 Samuel 5. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. And that he exalted his kingdom, catch this, for the sake of his people Israel. David knew that he was king for one reason. God chose him. Look, a lot of other qualified people were passed over in favor of me. So I know I'm here just by God's own appointment. And frankly, I know why I'm king. I'm here for the sake of God's people. Do you know why God gives teachers, pastors, um, evangelists today? To build up the church. That's why we will always give ourselves to preaching and not just preaching, but preaching of God's word. If you find me or someone else 
veering off of that, we are wide open to a conversation about that. We are here to do this because God's given us this to build up the church. Next week, Ben's going to tackle the rest of this chapter. You know what the rest of the chapter is about? It's all about the devastating consequences in your lives of what happens when false teachers get in and have their way amongst you. But take courage. God loves his church and provides for his sheep. In Jeremiah 3, it's not on the screen, just write this down, Jeremiah 3.15, times were bad. And God sent prophet and said, return, come back. And it says this, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. I want to wrap up our time with this. How do I look for spiritual fathers and mothers to mentor me? I think that's what we're longing for. Teaching doesn't just happen on Sunday morning, praise God. It goes on in all kinds of different ways. And I hope that you are seeking out people who will speak into your life as a Christian, as a mom, as a business guy, whatever it might be, as a student. Here's some good discernment for uh, those of us who need help with this. The Bible puts forth kind of a contrasting picture. Verses 10 to 16 in our passage today are a bunch of negative stuff, right? So what are we to, to look for? Let me give you a couple as we close. How are people to lead? They should lead by example. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be, to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain. Hear the contrast but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the person teaching you ought to lead by example and willingly and eagerly and not be domineering. As you see those traits come out, you ought to begin to think in your mind, ooh, that strikes me as not good. The scriptures have given me a standard, and that's not living up to that. Here's number two. They ought to lead carefully. Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves. He's talking to teachers. To yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. So we ought to be really careful as a shepherd as one amongst several shepherds at this church, we ought to be really careful with our own life. If you hear me or Kel or Chuck or some of the other leaders in your church being flippant, that doesn't really matter. That's a warning sign. And not just careful to my life, but careful to the flock, careful attention. Careful attention, it says elsewhere, to our doctrine. The Bible is very specific in its truth. It's not just God is love, right? We see defined out. It's not just that God is judge. He judges things according to these standards. I love that built into this is this care for the church of God, which is precious to him because he obtained it with his own blood. Here's the third and final one. Number three, we ought to lead, teach under authority. In other words, as a fellow follower, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Catch this, as those who will give an account. These passages, by the way, are all in your community group questions this week. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The teachers that you should submit to ought to be good at submitting. The people you follow, if you want to be a Christian, ought to be great followers of Christ. Look for that. That ought to be a criteria that jumps out at you. Can I just say, as one who gets up in front of you, Proverbs says that in many words there's much sin. Can I just say there's a weight of getting up and speaking in front of you guys every week? And here's what I'd say to this. As a leader, as a teacher, as an appointed by God elder of this church, 
I will need your forgiveness in the days ahead. I've needed it in the past. I'll need it in the days ahead. Don't get duped by the enemy to to be stuck in a little cul-de-sac looking for the perfect church, the perfect leader, the perfect person who never overlooks you, who never steps on your toes, who never forgets to return your calls or emails, who sometimes is impatient and short, who sometimes is just adult and doesn't get it. I've been all of those. So your leadership needs forgiveness in all this and needs grace in all this. You know what else? I need to be forgiving and gracious with those that I teach. We have some teachers in this room of a lot of different capacities. It's frustrating to teach sometimes, right? Ah, we've been over this. Just get it, right? So there has to be forgiveness working both ways. Can I just just give a 10-second plug to membership? Do you see why it's so critical that you belong to a fellowship? Part of who I know I'm going to give an account to are those who said, we are members of this local body. We are going to be held accountable to you, your, Dave, other elders. You guys will be held accountable by us. We're going to link hands in this and do this thing together, right? All right, let me invite the band up. I've got to show you one more verse, 2 Timothy 4. Why don't you turn there? Turn to 2 Timothy 4. Your fingers are getting lazy. They need some work. I just want you to see this Judging God and teaching coming together elsewhere. There's so many other places that this is coming together. But here's one that I just had to show you. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 4. God is the one who is commanding the teaching. God is the one who's going to judge those who teach. Here it is. Paul writing to Timothy. I charge you. That means I command you. In the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Do you catch the weight of this, the seriousness of this? And by his appearing in his kingdom, verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people, it goes on to say other things, but we'll also skip down will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Sheep, keep vigilant in this. Let me pray. God, we thank you for passages of Scripture that are so simple, so accessible, so easy to just spot it, and walk away. And God, I thank you for passages that cause us to dig in a little bit deeper and force us to ask different questions. And I pray right now, God, as we move forward, that you would develop in us good judgment. Many weighty things are on the line because of judgments we make in this life. Thank you for not leaving us alone in this, but for guiding us. In Jesus' name, amen.